0: Hey, this is Zach.
1: Welcome to Index for Continuance, a podcast about small press publishing. We're here today talking to Suzanne DeGatano, who is the co-founder, I think. She talks about the founding. The Mm. co-founder and owner of Max Bax Books in Cleveland Heights, um, one of our favorite local bookstores. On
0: Coventry. Max Bax Books on Coventry. That's right. She's reading all the text on the window sign.
1: And she talks about her window sign.
0: Yeah, it's it's a pivotal window sign.
1: Um, those of you in Cleveland may know it well. If you haven't been there, you should stop listening to this or listen to this while you go there.
0: I think they should stop listening and then come back. Yeah. Otherwise, no, this is going to be um, it's just you're just not going to get as much out of it. You know? Yeah. Get the most. <laughs> Extract all the value you can from this free uh, hour of um, audio. I say we
1: just want you. We just want to maximize and capitalize
0: Mm -hmm. for you what else is there to do
1: we ourselves are not making any money
0: yeah if you can find a way to make money (laughs) on this uh let us know
1: yeah let us know you don't have to share it with us that's not what we're looking for we're just gonna be proud of you 100 for what you've done
0: we do not want it we just want we want you to have it so good luck
1: um we have a few terms today and they're kind of they're wide-ranging in terms of what types of terms they are um Yeah. yeah, yeah they all came up in our conversation with suzanne and the first one is um, is Carol Pagel. Wow, who is a who is a person who is dear to our heart and often very close by. Um, Suzanne refers in the interview to Carol, uh, mm-hmm. so we thought we would uh, elucidate that that is Carol Pagel, who is the director of the CSU Poetry Center, and also is the publisher of Rescue Press and. Suzanne, I think, talks about she helped sell books very generously at Carol's and my recent book launch. Carol's uh, most recent book is Free Clean Filter Dirt from the University of Akron Press. So you should go get that at Maxbox now and then come back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They should get your book, too.
1: That's true, but they can figure that out. I'm not going to tell them.
0: Yeah, right. There's also more than one. So it's a real scavenger Good out, out there. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Have fun finding books to read
1: um carol is the reason that a number of us including me and zach are in cleveland uh she was the first one here in sort of our literary circles and i guess we all gathered here to orbit her more closely and now we all live in cleveland
0: we are gathered here today to orbit more closely <laughs> the gravity well of carol Piggle.
1: so i bet we're gonna interview her for this podcast but we haven't done it yet um sure. it seemed like one to keep saving and look forward to. So we'll talk more to and about Carol (laughs) in the future. Yeah, You're also gonna hear just like a lot about um, Cleveland and Cleveland Heights um, in this episode and just like a lot of beautiful local history and the names of some awesome venues and bookstores and other uh, bars and such past and present. So Mm -hmm. if you're not from Cleveland, I guess you'll enjoy them as local color and if you are from here i think it'll be fun
0: either way don't worry about it it's gonna be fine another i guess this is another proper noun if we're you know uh acknowledging the categories we're operating in um an author who comes up that uh i think suzanne just mentions by his last name which i think that's usually how i've heard him uh Invoked, conjured uh, as well. Um, Knausgard with some. There's some Norwegian pronunciation. So uh, here you go. I'm Karl
2: Ove So
0: that um, author of My Struggle, which is a gigantic six-volume autobiographical novel, but you know, like kind of operating in that between space between memoir and fiction and Um, I mean, I've certainly heard a lot of people mention these books when they're trying to talk about Mm autofiction, which I guess is a a helpful uh, word to live in that between space. But um, yeah, it's just big, big book situation, you know. And one of the things that we talk about with Suzanne is, you know, that's just some, you know. As a bookseller, right? Um, some like popular ideas about readings uh, decline in popularity that like might be out there. Um, but you know, Suzanne mentions this book as one that sells quite well. You know, particularly with like younger or like somewhat younger readers, right? Um, so that you know, conventional or newly conventional wisdom that like the kids don't read <laughs> maybe isn't um, all the way salient. So. Um, so thanks, Carl.
1: I think it's a book that really, like, blew up. This is And true. Yeah. in the cool way of literature, you know, literature and translation is not usually particularly successful in the U.S. So to have a six-volume uh, novel that's maybe most notable for being mundane yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. for um, being named after Hitler's Mein Kampf, which it is. <laughs> which it is. Correct, um, yes is a fun, exciting moment in, in indie literature. So yeah.
0: You know what it's not? It's not a slim volume.
1: No. <laughs> Which
0: is another term that uh, is out there now. Um, oh,
1: people praising like the shortness.
0: Well, I've just, I, all right, well, I guess quick aside. Like, you know, particularly this. these two words together, the slim volume. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, that's a sort of phrase I've seen in a lot of like, I would say contemporary, but um, like extremely recent, like criticism of just, you know, liter like just like new literature. It's like, oh yes, it's a slim volume. And I I think it's fine. It's like, I guess it's fun, but I've always found it I've always had trouble with it. I'm like, slim? I'm gonna go ahead and
1: say it's problematic. Okay, yeah. thanks.
0: Yeah, uh, I I don't want to like you know I don't want to exclude anybody unduly, but yeah, I've always thought it's fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs>
1: like,
0: what What do you mean? Slim I never volume? thought
1: about it before today, but I feel very clear in this moment. I've heard people be similarly hesitant about the phrase "muscular pros." You. But I guess like. I've sometimes felt complimented when people said that, which is probably internalized misogyny for me. So slim volume is out as a phrase.
0: So what is it for me if it's internalized misogyny for you? We'll talk about it. We'll figure it out later.
1: I think Um, also just like, let us not praise slimness.
0: Let us not praise the slim volume or even the volume at all. Yeah. Let us praise silence. (laughs) And moving on to the next thing. Our
1: next term is about <laughs> is about readings, which are happen out loud. Um, Suzanne mentions the lighthouse reading series because um, yeah. Max Pax comes again very generously and sells books at this reading series, which we run out of the CSU Poetry Center. Um, if you're local, we would love to see you there. I am often organizing these readings. And uh, she refers specifically to an event that the poets Shelley Feller and Noor Hindi had just done a little bit before we recorded this interview with her. And um, Shelley's book is Dreamboat, and it's awesome. And Noor's is Dear God, Dear Bones, Dear Yellow. And so very much recommend those. Um, Because Suzanne was like speaking off the cuff about this reading, when she mentioned Noor's book, just as a quick addendum if you are going to look for it. Um, she said it's published by AK Press. In fact, it is published by Haymarket. These are two great indie presses doing leftist work. I thought I would just share like a teeny bit of information about them since they came up just to support their missions. AK Press is a, quote, worker-run, collectively-managed anarchist publishing since 1990 and is based in California. Haymarket is based in Chicago, as their name suggests. And, uh, quote, we strive to make our books a vibrant and organic part of social movements and the education and development of a critical, engaged, and internationalist left, end quote. These are two great presses to check out.
0: Our next term in the alphabetical order in which we arranged them um, is print on demand. Uh, and this comes up while we're talking about, uh, I, I mean, something I... Personally find fascinating maybe you do too as a listener to a podcast about publishing um this is a, a publishing term for basically you know the i think the traditional seems weird to call it traditional just like the way um, you know most like presses i think have worked since the beginning of printing was that you print a bunch of books you have them in stock in a place and then they get you know Sold, distributed somehow from this central store. Um, Print on Demand is a newer technology um, enabled by, you know, printing uh, advancements in some printing technology. um, That is, it's pretty much what it sounds like, but it basically, uh, you know, allows publishers to not have to have a whole stock, like a whole print run in stock in order to be able to supply a book to either a bookstore or, um a buyer so essentially the book is printed upon demand. I think this is like an interesting like I don't I don't totally have like a final personally like stance on it. I think it's it's great because I think it enables more publishing of physical books to happen mm-hmm. and for more presses that couldn't otherwise maybe afford to put up the sometimes you know thousands of dollars it takes to even print like a few hundred of a nice book um you know a way to still be able to create like a physical object <laughs> that will be read and interacted with um you know but i think it also has some drawbacks you know maybe particularly in terms of like material quality mm-hmm. um you know the 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 maybe printing capabilities themselves of the on-demand printing are a little bit more limited so um you know just like more classic uh scarcity extraction uh <laughs> logics and uh questions to explore here
1: yeah i think it's like it definitely reduces your overhead in terms of like warehousing hundreds and thousands of books mm-hmm. So you're only printing it when you're going to sell it or a very, very small number. Yeah. Obviously, the unit cost then is high, yeah. uh, but you're printing it specifically in order to sell it. I think but yeah, the downsides usually are understood as yeah, the quality, like that you can tell when a book is print on demand and that it looks a little bit less beautiful. Uh, Obviously, that's been improving, and any print-on-demand publishers who want to <laughs> engage with us and show us how beautiful their books are oh. now, <laughs> please do. And also, I think what I suspect is that if you have a book that starts selling real quick, um, y- you would maybe not want to be on print-on-demand at that moment because you wouldn't be able to get the volume out, the, you know, the, keep up with the sales volume
0: mm-hmm. using
1: that technology.
0: For sure. And that, yeah, I think it's really interesting because, like, I th- I've heard different presses, you know, um, have total, totally different takes on, you know, some, I know it's like some publishers like refuse to do it and others are like, no, we, we only do it, <laughs> you know? So it's, 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 uh it's interesting. It's not like quite the same, but you know, it, it has like similar kind of, um, you know, debate energy as like, you know, thinking about, just like e-readers or you know the preferring that over physical books some people totally do and not not even for like accessibility reasons or anything else i just like like the medium better um so it's it's like curious it's one of those like pretty fascinating little you know areas where you know there's there are like politics and aesthetics to get into with it, uh, but it's also like mega boring <laughs> outside of that. Which is cool. It depends on your intros. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
1: I think it's, it's cool to think about e readers because, like the e reader, um, it's a technology or a shift in technology that I think was originally seen as maybe in, that it would entirely disrupt or displace traditional book printing and, in fact, has ended up just supplementing it. Um, yeah. Like, it plays a role in book publishing and book selling, but it hasn't replaced. Um, the larger, more traditional print runs um, in, in part, you know, for the reasons that we mentioned. But I remember at some point, you know, there was that Espresso book machine, which I completely failed to look up before just now talking about it. But it was an idea that you would like, it, you know, you would go to a bookstore. In the bookstores of the future, you would go and you would like choose this file and then you would print the book right there using mm. this book machine. <laughs> and you can kind of see why people thought were excited about that idea, which is that you would sort of like browse mm. like the endless, you know, what every book bookstore is fighting against is that they only have so much shelf space they can only stock so many books and they can only show you so many books and blah 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 so if you had this ability like people could come and like browse all of the files and then print the book out uh in fact we've sort of like a little bit more separated out print book selling and digital book selling kind of happen into different places and through different like browsing processes like we haven't really ended up in that kind of Desire or need to make an ebook into a print book in order to love or read it in the same way, but
0: and it's not until hospital coffee gets as good will the print on demand of the book machine imagining, which is the hover car of printing only then shall the structure change. I'm just noticing that like all of our thank you um this is not. related to publishing but I just feel like there's so much of this stuff that's like I don't know, like our ability to imagine the future (laughs) Mm -hmm. feels like it follows these same kinds of patterns all the time and like you know, we get into like a little bit of like talking about AI with Suzanne like a tiny bit, I don't think it's worth totally prefacing here but it just strikes me that this is often how it goes, right? The new thing is going to totally revolutionize the thing that it's like the space that's happening in um, but really what it does is something different and like just kind of complimentary, complementary, and like is neither the disaster nor the great success mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. promised to be. So I don't know. Uh, I guess this is just like to say we're, we're not as good at speculating as <laughs> we think we are and we keep doing it the same way. Um, and I think maybe like, I don't know just, this is like a a place where we see a lot of, I don't know, for some reason, publishing uh, or like literature feels like it's a, there's something like particularly like sensitive about it or something, right? Because like that is the space of like the imagination, um, in a sense, like there's a lot of the time, like the projects of writing and reading and publishing are like a speculative activity somehow. So like it's natural that we like really like glom onto these new things i guess so like i'm gonna just like rescind my previous comment about print on b- demand being boring <laughs> because i think it's actually like a a microcosm right it's like a uh, a little like micro site of actually like a lot of these bigger things and um just like the shapes of those things
1: yeah if you're not interested in it you should be worried
0: good luck with the future pal
1: <laughs> but it is i think that's a great point about how, you know, I guess we look to new technologies to sort of completely transform, but in fact, often they sort of slot into the existing landscape and the, the sort of durability of the book, it seems to be a theme, right? Yeah. <laughs> in that, like, actually the book kind of, um, you know, is such a sturdy, stubborn little guy, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, can't, like, you can't quite get rid of, like, they keep existing, um, you know, even though there are increasing ways to do it differently and and people are using them differently obviously like we're on a podcast which isn't a technology that existed even a short time you know well it had its earlier iterations etc but but we're just on here to talk about books
0: (laughs) (laughs) stubborn little guys
1: yeah so books move around (laughs) through distributors and wholesale wholesalers and distributors i should say than that or for the sake of the alphabet we talk a bunch about Ingram, which is the, the major wholesaler in the U.S. Um, and Suzanne's going to do a great job kind of laying out her relationship with or her, you know, her independent book relationship with Ingram and kind of the role Ingram plays in being like a centralized wholesaler. I should say that I think on this very podcast, as well as in many other settings in my life, I sort of lazily refer to Ingram as a distributor. More properly, it would be a wholesaler that buys from distributors. There's like these little nodes of distribution. So um, Ingram is kind of like sucking up books from all over all sorts of distributors from the big five to things like SPD, Consortium, et cetera. And then they're warehousing them and, and uh, Amazon orders from Ingram. You know, so many indie bookstores ordered from Ingram. I'm pretty sure libraries are ordering from Ingram. You know, they're Mm -hmm. really the way that a lot of our stubborn, sturdy little guys, like, (laughs) move (laughs) around.
0: (laughs) Well, and just, like, you know, something that I thought about with this was just, I mean, kind of similar to print on demand as, like, this seemingly innocuous thing that actually has, like, potentially huge consequences. Um, You know, I think with particularly small press publishing, you know, distribution is actually like a huge deal, right? Like I feel that often the thing that, cause anyone can start a press, you know, if you have like some material and some money and, you know, a basic understanding of how to like put a book together and get it produced, right? Like it's
1: even pretty cheap if you're just doing the first one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Kind of, you can kind of get it rolling with not too much. Yeah,
0: totally. Um, but then, you know, the, usually the problems of, like, scalability, which often, like, relate to problems of, um, I mean, it's ridiculous to talk about profitability, but, you know, we started off talking about figuring out how to monetize things. I think, like, you know, a major obstacle for, like, any, like, new small press is just, like, at what point does the distribution move from your basement or whatever, right? Like, literally hand-mailing the books out as we've, you know, talked to some Presses like Dorothy, you know, mm-hmm. who are do literally doing that. I think a lot of presses are doing that. Um, but you know, there's sort of a, a point at which uh, the distributor, you know, becomes like pretty necessary to the press as an enterprise scaling, but also just like those books reaching more readers. Right? I mean, it's not without distribution that books end up at you know bookstores across the country. Even if you're just selling or stocking to indie bookstores, like. That's a job. Like, that is, like, mm-hmm. a full 40-hour-a-week job, like, trying to place those things um, and fill orders. Um, never mind end up at the the Noble barnes of the world, mm-hmm. you, you know? So just to say, like, these, like, distribution things, it's, like, a another kind of, like, slightly obscure, like, systemic detail, but it's, like, extremely key to, you know, not just, like... The practical questions we're interested in as like people who want to know about how books get made but then like this actually has like a direct impact on like what a reading future looks like right like what what reading public can access this title <laughs> you know that is not distributed um unless someone you know literally calls someone on the phone or emails them so just all to say like i'm you know I'm getting fired up. But, like, distribution is, like, a huge deal. (laughs) Yeah. No. And
1: it's not boring.
0: Yeah. Okay? (laughs) It's fascinating.
1: Uh, And also, especially if you want your books to be available on Amazon, you know, which most of us small presses who are, um, you know, pretty opposed to Amazon as a thing and and as a force in the world, but because it's a major way that books get sold, we do want our books to be available um, there. Working with Amazon, I mean, I haven't worked with Amazon directly in a while, but just in general, it blows. And so <laughs> having a distributor that's doing that in a more centralized way, where they can liaise with Amazon and they can like, you know figure out Amazon's various systems, et cetera, is so helpful rather than you as a human trying to do that kind of one-on-one as a um, vendor or whatever they are on Amazon, you know, it's just the sort of massive, like like piles <laughs> of, of corporations that run all publishing a books. So it's like, it sucks to interact with them as a, as a very small um, thing or mm-hmm. just like one or two people. They're not designed for that. They're not friendly to it. And so, you know, if you can have a distributor that is doing that for you, so let's say even SBD, SBD represents about 400 small presses. So to have them you know, do that interaction with Amazon and stock Amazon books is a huge boon to those presses, most of which are run by volunteer labor Mm -hmm. and some real, um, basement energy. Like,
0: (laughs) oh yeah. Yeah. Basement times for sure.
1: So we should, should we talk about SPD?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, which have we, have we, I feel like we've mentioned SPD before and like explained small press distribution.
1: We talked about it a bunch in the first episode with Matej Ankelevich because he had written a bunch about kind of SPD and distribution-related issues Mm -hmm. in the kind of essay series that we were talking to him about. But I don't know if we've talked about it since then.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, there's a lot happening with it. I think the the main thing would be that, yeah, as you mentioned, SPD, pretty major distributor of small press books based in Berkeley, California, um, announced in the spring that they were partnering with Ingram,
1: mm-hmm. right? And so this announcement had just happened when we were talking to Suzanne. So we yeah. sound like, I feel like I sound like confused and like weepy and flummoxed about you, what's going, like unclear about what's going on. Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah, um, we, we had no idea. It was like very, very new information. Um, but what that announcement was, was of the formation of what they have called SPD Next Um, which I think my understanding of it was basically that SPD was going to, I mean, one of the major services that SPD has provided or historically provided is, um, warehousing all of these books in their distribution center. And then, um, you know, having the resources to ship, you know, like a box of a hundred books out to a bookstore, um. You know, you could also, as a consumer, you could buy one copy of one book directly from SPD, which I've certainly done before. But one of the big changes that they were going to—they were going to change how they were warehousing books. They were going to move. They're their, closing
1: their Berkeley warehouse in part because Berkeley has gotten so expensive. You know, they're founded in the '70s, and having a warehouse in Berkeley, yeah, is now a huge investment. Yeah.
0: To say nothing of the fact that just like geographically, you know, like we're yes. we're a press in Cleveland, and our distributor is in. Berkeley, California, mm-hmm. and so then if someone in New York orders, mm-hmm. uh, like a bookstore, want you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm saying this like as though this happens a lot, but no, you I, know. it does
1: happen a lot. And Amazon has set the kind of standard for things to get there really quickly. Mm-hmm. So if you are in that situation where your books always have to come from California, mm-hmm. it's no longer ideal.
0: Definitely not ideal. And Suzanne talks about that, you know, about this, uh, the fact that the this these new storage centers are actually going to be like in the middle of the country yeah which i think will make in terms of just that time problem i think will make a big difference um the other one of the other pieces of this is that in partnering with ingram um, they were going to be an offering print on demand I think to like some presses, like yeah, we early. haven't
1: quite seen how that will play out. So yeah. we're like a little late, further into this process than we were when we talked to Suzanne. But like, but it hasn't, the move hasn't happened yet. So we haven't really had an opportunity, you know, for publishers who work with SPD, or you know, I'm mm-hmm. an author who has books that are distributed by SPD. We haven't seen yet kind of what that will look like, and um, the larger small presses who work with SPD will be housed at Ingram and Ingram warehouses and Ingram will pick, pack and ship those books. And the smaller, that's our favorite phrase,
0: pick, pack and ship, pick,
1: pack and ship. (laughs) The smaller small presses will go to publishers, storage and shipping. So basically, unfortunately, you know, with the closure of the warehouse in Berkeley, there will be a loss of jobs that worked at that warehouse. Mm -hmm. And the books will go to sort of two different sets of destinations depending on the size of the press and the volume of sales so we haven't seen yet kind of from the publisher's side what that what that will change what that centralization will change in theory there will be cheaper shipping but one thing that's important to note is it won't change the terms um, that spd has with ingram and we get into this with suzanne a little bit and matt vey talked about it um, to the best of my memory which is that SPD books are often sold on short discount to Ingram, which means if an indie bookstore goes to order a book from SPD and they're just kind of looking up one copy and trying to order it, it's the discount that it's sold, out, it's sold at is about half the discount of sort of a normal book from Ingram. So they're really not getting as, as their usual deal on it. And that means a lot of indie bookstores are reluctant to stock SPD books you can get the normal, you know, the usual discount rate, which is 40% off cover price, um, if you bundle some SPD books. Uh, But you may have noticed that if you've ever tried to order SPD books from an indie bookstore, and people didn't kind of didn't want to do it or said they couldn't do it, you sometimes will face that. And just to say that situation, I don't think is expected, to the best of my knowledge, is not expected to change with this new partnership. So, um, you know, we're not really seeing that's the kind of pressure point for a lot of both small press publishers and booksellers in terms of SPD and Ingram and I don't think that is actually changing so uh, yeah <laughs>
0: distributions of <a> BFD yeah <laughs> yeah Suzanne does a great job of I think talking about the relationship between the independent bookstore and the independent press which absolutely is such a you know I mean she can talk about it.
1: I mean, she's a hero. Yeah, yeah. just so,
0: so, like, eloquently to, Yeah, like, I felt very moved by it, but this, I think this is all just, like, kind of part and parcel to that, mm-hmm. that, like, you, we can, I think one of the reasons, again, this, 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 these distribution, like, questions and problems and developments are so, like, critical is because, like, they, you know, they directly, like, create that link, right? Um, that relationship between the publisher and the bookstore and, uh. Yeah, I just love the way that Suzanne articulates that relationship in we're kind of thinking about it right now in these like almost like technical terms and then I don't know not that she doesn't do that but she also I think just has like a beautiful way of like making that link in the conversation which is awesome it's worth yeah worth listening to is that right yeah we believe this
1: the other thing we could say about SPD um <laughs> is that you know they're the small presses that work with SPD, they don't really have an alternative. Um, yeah. They don't have an alternative distributor. They don't have an alternative path to Ingram, or the well, or not a simple one, or or we'd have to go back to kind of doing it ourselves, um, which means the you know someone at your press is doing a pretty massive amount of pick, pack, and ship labor. Um, <laughs> Because uh, we're too small. Uh, You know, we only publish, you know, a smaller press that is just publishing maybe like two to 10 or so books a year, something along those lines. Like we're too small for a lot of the other distributors to be interested in working with us. So that's the reason that SPD exists was to um, kind of create a collective site of small presses and to Mm -hmm. represent small presses in the market. It's a nonprofit and has that kind of like nonprofit mission of serving small press literature. So just to say like SPD... For a lot of those presses, they can't really go anywhere else. Um, yeah. Their consortium is another distributor that a lot of indie and literary presses work with, um, but they're mostly a, a little bit larger. Um, mm-hmm. They publish like a few more books a year, so um, they can kind of qualify to be at some bigger distributors. You know, maybe we'll talk some to some more folks about consortium along the way. But you know, just to note that that is one reason that the the doings of SPD are like so important to so Mm -hmm. many writers and small press editors and publishers.
0: And we'll have like, you know, sort of waves of impacts, right. Even Mm -hmm. for, even if, right. Like one is not directly has never interfaced with SPD, doesn't even know (laughs) what that stands for. Right. It is like very consequential to just like the, the structure um, or like infrastructure behind how, um small press books just get around. Yeah. The economy. The economy. The economy.
1: It's the economy.
0: It's it turns out.
1: The last teeny tiny like sub term underneath wholesalers and distributors which yep. is what we've <laughs> umbrellaing been talking about is Bookshop. A lot of you may be familiar with Bookshop which arose as a kind of like alternative to Amazon mm-hmm. and you you buy a book there and what happens is, like you're buying a book online, like you know how to do, <laughs> um, and they they make a donation to an indie bookstore in your area. Yeah. So they're they're sort of trying. I think the idea behind it is that they're trying to capitalize on the huge market for online book selling and the fact that people want to buy books online, but then redistribute some of that to local brick and mortar indies as a way to keep those, um, going and sort of share out, share out some of the profit from online book selling to indies, um, rather than just have all the money go into the giant suck hole of Amazon, um, (laughs) bookshop. So bookshop fulfills through Ingram. So they are just working directly with Ingram they're not getting those books from that local bookstore, you know, so they're sort of people. I probably feel less positive about bookshop than a lot of people. Um, So, you know, um, and maybe if you have a strong uh, opinion about bookshop or you want to talk more about it, reach out. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) call in. We're live. (laughs) Call in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Just because it's sort of displacing the sale that would be at the indie bookstore and, you know, I'm just like not sure. To me, it's a little bit one of those like tech tech fixes that doesn't feel like it's going to work in the long term. Also, because I'm so skeptical about the the role of Ingram. Um, not that I have a way of a way around <laughs> it. So, um, anyway, just to explain that that's Bookshop's model, and Bookshop is fulfilling directly through Ingram. They are not actually going through any of the local indie bookstores, but they are making a donation to them from your sale.
0: Yeah, which seems like. It's, it's got like um, whiffs of like carbon offset credit. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like that yeah. same structure of like
1: it's an indie offset.
0: Yeah, yeah, like for for this United Airlines flight that you're taking, one tree will be planted. You know, or like yeah. <laughs> you're just like what, yeah. wait, wait, where, what, why, what do you? <laughs> Although even that maybe is a little more direct, but D. Do you have like a um, do you have like a formative like library experience? Because Suzanne talks about when we ask her, I'm not gonna ruin it, but like she she uses this like phrase that I realized was kind of cool. She talks about being being like raised in like a library family. Like we were a library family. Yeah. <laughs> and I realized like oh that's a total that's a total thing. It made me realize that like oh yeah I have like really early memories of going to the library um somewhat the bookstore too but it was certainly like the library was like where you know whatever my mom would bring us and you know we would just we would grab whatever i feel like i didn't have an appreciation for it until much later like i just i don't think i understood what i don't think i understood what a book was until i was like 25 so like that was my problem but you know i mean she was definitely reading like a, you know, she's like a book a day reader, like one of these people that I will like never be. (laughs) Um, but it just made me realize like, oh yeah, yeah. Library family. The library is like a pretty key place. Yeah. Yeah.
1: My dad was a reference librarian. So I was often in the library and I was often kind of like waiting for him to be finished with work, I think. So we would just be like running loose. I don't know if other people appreciated our presence. Because it was like a college library, which yeah. meant it had those cool stocks in the basement where you could um, press a button and they would move. You know, mm-hmm. they would like mechanically like... And then you could like race through really fast. Yeah. But he was also like... He really brought the library home because if you had like a question at dinner time, he would sometimes pause and be like, reference question of the day. <laughs> and then he would go get a book and he would answer that question for you. So I guess we were... Really, a library family. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so great. I guess I'm a library family now because my wife works at a library.
1: Yeah, you're I, in it.
0: I can't handle library stories though. Like, I, I it's a real like. <laughs> I have a real like soft spot. It's it's hard. But... They
1: make you cry. Yeah, or, like, too dark academia.
0: It's not really no more like the. I don't know. It just really exacerbates my sense of uh, feeling. Feeling uh, afloat in like a <laughs> hopelessly infinitely cruel world <laughs> that uh, we all sort of have to figure out how to navigate together, but you know, just like you know, oh, there, yeah, there was this little boy and he was really excited about the copier, so they, uh, his mom made a copy of just like a flyer from the bulletin board and he was really excited. It's like it's like, oh man, I can't handle that or like yeah. you know, checking out, um, just get, yeah. I don't know, just, seeing little kids get excited about books or like, you know, families uh, checking out toys from the library. Like, I don't know. I'm going to get, I'm going to get too, <laughs> too wound up, but uh, you know, sort of like, like the bookstore, right. The library is a important, important place. Um, not just like for us, just I think like for the world.
1: Yeah. Um, for the f- future and yeah. the past and the present. I read a ton of um, eBooks from the library I just have an addiction to reading crime novels on my phone, and they're all from the library. And so you're in that kind of cool made-up text fix, tech fix. How do we talk tech fix? <laughs> um, tech fix space where like I have to wait. You know what I mean? Like uh-huh. because there's only like 25 copies of that ebook, so I have to wait, even though it's a P- it's a PDF. <laughs> you know what I mean like yeah. but because of like digital rights management right. they only pay it to have so many so you wait even though it's a it's a file yeah it's just a file it's so just a file, guys. but I don't even mind because I think like yeah this is a really popular library book and I just have to wait my turn and it's, then when it's ready I will get to read it
0: it's a really cool pdf should we talk to Suzanne
1: let's go all right let's go I'm Hillary here with Zach hello and with Suzanne DeGatano from Max Fax Books in Coventry. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Well, we're excited to talk to you about uh, Max Fax, which is an incredible independent bookstore in the Coventry neighborhood in Cleveland Heights. Um, if I am right, I think you recently celebrated your 40th anniversary of the store. Was that last year?
2: Our store was actually established by my, bis- by, by my business partner in 1978. Whoa. So um, this year, I guess it'll be 45 years for the entire store, but we've been on Coventry um, since 1982, which is when my involvement with the store began. So it's, it's, it's kind of like we, we sometimes celebrate dual anniversaries, the founding of the store, and then the time on Coventry, which is, this has been our only store now for most of the time of the store. It's
1: incredible. Um, it's an incredible accomplishment. I guess, so we were curious just to hear about like the early days of max Pax, Um, like what brought you in to the work of bookselling, what those early years were like,
2: the bookstore scene
1: in that time.
2: Yeah, um, so um, my business partner had opened a store, um, actually in Kent when he was a graduate student there. So he bought a store, um, an existing store in Chagrin Falls, moved it to Kent he, it was in one room, he lived in the upstairs, he lived in the room. It was like in an upstairs part of Kent. And um, he, the hallway, um, he shared the space with an independent record store. And so that, he was there for a year when he was getting a master's degree. And then he moved the whole store back to his hometown of Chagrin Falls. And um, it operated as a used bookstore, um, but it was overflowing with books. Um, it, was, it was a book exchange. There was no new books at the time. There was solely a used bookstore. But there were so many books, and so he was looking to open a different location. And um, he and I knew each other because we had worked in restaurants together. I had just got back to Cleveland. I had been traveling for a year, and I was, and I thought it sounded like a cool idea to start a store. And in, in the beginning, I thought, oh, you know, I'll be here for a year or two while it gets established. Uh, so we found a, a space on Coventry, and um, it was a neighborhood that I knew well. Um, when I got out of college, I had moved here, and... It was just. It was just always felt like a home to me, and uh, we loved the diversity of the neighborhood. And so we found a space, like a second floor location here on Coventry, and that's where we opened our store. And then since then, we've been in a couple of different locations on the street here,
0: but the same street.
2: Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and then the Chagrin, uh, the Chagrin Falls store closed. My my business partner became a lawyer and he got, you know, involved in in his business. And so um, that store closed pretty early on. And so um, the Coventry store has been the only one since 1982. In those days, there were lots of bookstores. There was even another bookstore on Coventry. It was called Coventry Books. And um, it was run by three partners. And one of the partners is Ellen Strong, who is the bookbinder that's inside Loganberry Books. And she and two partners ran that store. And then they had opened another store in Berea, um, and then like the the just the expansion didn't really work out, and it kind of like um, made the Coventry store fail. So that store was here probably for about I'm not even sure maybe about ten years, like in the late 70s and into the mid 80s. Um, so then our business model was um, we were basically a used bookstore. We trade for books, then you know, maybe in the late 80s, we started to um, braid kind of new books into our, our mix. Um, and then around that same time, like a huge thing for the store was our poetry reading series. There was a, a poet named Daniel Thompson and he was, um, had started and kind of implemented lots of reading series throughout the city. He was a really fine poet himself. He was able to blend kind of a social consciousness with craft. And he also had a very um, performance style to his work. So, um, so he wanted to start a reading series on Coventry and, and um, we, we'd started that in 1984 and because um, of his impetus. And then it's been ongoing. Um, since 1984, except for the pandemic, we, we, we stopped during the pandemic. And then we just restarted uh, in February, 2023. We we started it up again. So.
1: Fantastic. Like now I want to ask you maybe about like 40 years of bookselling history or something, but I was thinking, you know, we've seen all of these intense kind of waves of changes. I mean, I've been in independent publishing for about 20 years and Quite a lot has happened in that amount of time um, to sort of transform publishing and book selling. Um, you know, the rise of the chain stores, Borders and Barnes and Noble, then the rise of Amazon, <laughs> the closure of Borders, this kind of you know large scale shift to online retail, closure of you know storefronts, and then even eventually of malls, um, and then kind of a new increase in independent bookstores in the last decade or so. Um, I- after a period of decline, or at least that's what some of the numbers made it look like. I'm curious for your, um, for your perspective. And then of course the pandemic, which, um, you know, I don't even know how to summarize. Uh, so I'm, I'm just curious kind of what's helped max Max kind of endure and thrive through all of those kind of waves and changes. Um, and in your eyes, like you know, has the meaning and mission kind of independent book selling sharpened or transformed at all? And kind of in response to those market changes and kind of all of these corporate sort of battles or, or trends.
2: That was a really good summary of all the changes in the industry over this entire time. You nailed exactly all the big changes. So we, you know, I guess we're just present in our store and, um, we, really love and appreciate our customers and of course we you know love and appreciate reading and so i guess that's just that's the the basic formula of being in the world um so um we were always just kind of um you know getting by um making money and then paying our bills making money and paying our bills that was that was the the whole thing and um but we love what you do. And I did very comfortable with kind of a Spartan lifestyle. So I was, you know, didn't, you know, didn't really miss making big money. Um, I, for about 30 years, I also bartended. Um, I was um, at the Barking Spider Tavern, which is, um, it's no longer there, but it was a really great um, music venue on the Case Western Reserve campus. And um, so, I guess you can't really call it bartending, it was just beer and wine, but so I was there, I was like a beer barista, but um, there was, um, you know, live music there every night of the week, and um, so I worked a couple nights a week, and my tips from that job is what sustained the bookstore for a really, really long time, because, um, you know, I really couldn't afford to pay myself, and then, you know, as we sort of grew and got more established, you know, I was able to take a little bit of a salary, but, um the, when we moved to the spot where we're, we're at now, that was a big change for the store because we just became more visible. For about eight years, we were down towards the Mayfield end of Coventry and people found us for sure. But um, once we moved here next to Tommy's, that was obviously just a big move for our store. Uh, the link between Tommy's and the bookstore became, I think, um, an activity for people. They liked to be be able to eat or wait in the bookstore and, you know, browse for books. And and so that became kind of an established tradition. And so that really helped us, um, believe it or not, and this is like a weird thing and an odd thing, but right after we moved here, we put a neon sign in our window. And I think that made a difference to our visibility because people would would walk by and say, i you know, after that and say, I never noticed your store before. So I think, I think it was just like wallpaper. It was just like something on the street and nothing we had ever done visually had entranced people into the store. But when we put a neon in the window, it really made a difference. So that was kind of, that's kind of a funny change too. But when the big box, there was, when the big box stores were here, um, Cleveland had, you know, uh, I think a saturation. We were, we had Barnes and Noble, which we still do, of course, um, Borders and Joseph Beth. And they're all they were all good retailers and big chains. And um, it was natural for people just to kind of go to those big chains. And we always had our customers um, who supported us. But it wasn't until borders closed and Joseph Beth at the same time that I think readers looked around and said, okay, well, what else is here? And they, they realized that, okay, there's, Loganberry Books, there's Apple Tree Books, there's Max Backs, there's um Visible Voice. I mean, there you know, so so then people after Borders and Joseph Beth left, that is what enabled the Cleveland Independence to be able to start to thrive because, you know, then then we could, we were doing what we always did, but people were finding us.
1: I love that about the neon sign. I think that's it's so amazing. <laughs>
0: I also just, I, I just love hearing that. It's just like more about just this like forever link between something between like the service industry and publishing or like the literature or whatever. It's just like, oh yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone worked at a bar, <laughs> you know. Like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's pretty funny to me. Um, I loved just hearing about that and. Then I'm also interested in just like, if you wouldn't mind, uh, before you proceed with this, the rest of this big question, um, just hearing a little bit about your own just like relationship to literature, right? Um, we're kind of hearing about like, you know, how you sort of got into like the book selling side of things. But, um, you know, like, are you, obviously you're a reader, but like, are you a writer? Like, is that, you know, like, what is, what is your own sort of like, your own love of literature, where does that come from? And I'm I'm always interested, like, if just in the idea that, like, there are people, there are ways of being involved in not just like publishing, but just like in literature that don't necessarily even involve writing at all. Um, And I think that's actually like a really necessary role that is often like under acknowledged or undervalued, so I would just yeah, I'm just curious how you how you um, how you see yourself in that, and just you know to to just talk about your own relationship to reading and writing.
2: Yeah, so I um, was a reader since I was a little kid. Um, my family encouraged it. We went to the library all the time. The first book that I got as a gift was from my aunt, and it was a children's biography of Benjamin Franklin, and I treasured that book. Um, so, so I was just, you know, I was just a reader in, in my house growing up. We had, um, you know, like a couch and behind the couch was an old fashioned kind of radiator. And when I was lost and when people couldn't find me, that was the first place they looked because there was like this place where you could stretch out between the couch and the, the, the heater back there. And that's where I would always read Um, grew up in Cleveland Heights and and then um, we moved when I was a teenager to South Euclid and so my my libraries were the um, Heights library and then that the old Tudor South Euclid library. Um, And, you know, we weren't really, we didn't really go to bookstores and I can't even, you know, I know there was bookstores downtown but we were kind of library people growing up. Um, and then in college, I majored in um, communications and political science. My idea for my life was to do documentaries. Um, and then right out of college, I, I got a job with a um, medical school doing a lot of medical kind of videos and photography and stuff like that. But that only lasted for a couple of years and then I traveled around. And um, when my business partner was looking to open another store, I thought it sounded really interesting because of course, you know, I was a reader and loved literature and, and so, So then that's, that's really how I got to the book business because I, I guess I was attracted to small business. My family had a food distribution company um, that my grandfather started. He was an immigrant from Sicily and he started with, you know, a cart on the street selling, you know, fruit and, um, and then it kind of grew that business grew. And so that model was sort of imprinted in me, I think. And I feel like I just, you know, had that as um, a template um, to kind of grow a business, just to be, do something that you love and kind of stick with it and and see if it grows. And it was matched my temperament. Um, I loved reading and I loved working with people. Um, I love being, I love the customers and all their different stories when they come in, when they walk in the door. And so um, I think that those two factors kind of, you know, just uh, made a career for me.
0: That's cool. So it's really, it really is like just sort of a love of of reading and of of books, you know, sort of then just coupled with like another interest or, I mean, you know, we all have to just like figure out how to be in the world. So, you know, it feels, it feels, it feels good when we can, I don't know, find a way to. Find a way to do it that makes sense and it feels like we're we're good at it which is i think often the i don't know the only way a hard a hard thing or something that doesn't really reward you very materially <laughs> maybe it makes sense to continue continue in you know um especially for a long time you know i have this perspective but i'm you know i feel like i'm at the bottom of a very large hill so <laughs> it's like
2: <laughs> there's a book um that i didn't read it but it 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 is um comes up in the like business section or self-help section it's called do what you love and the money will follow and mm-hmm. um i you know i i don't know if it's true but i always <laughs> think about that
0: yeah yeah uh i want it to be true you know
2: yeah right
0: big <laughs> <think> wanting it <laughs> is part of it <laughs> that's cool this feels related. Then uh, uh, here's another thing we wanted to talk about. So, you know, one of the things we focus on on this podcast is, uh, in addition to, you know, just kind of like trying to think through what the term like small press means, you know, in general, um, and and try to get different takes or versions of that. You know, something that comes up all the time in our our own discussions of it, like internally at the Poetry Center, and then also whenever we interact with folks who work in this space is uh, this word community, right? Which is, it's just like a key term, right? For all kind of like independent and small press endeavors. Um, But it's also a term that it's almost so vague it means nothing or, you know, I don't know. I feel like I've become really sensitive whenever I sort of see its usage, especially on the part of like an institution because I'm just like, okay, but like, Define, <laughs> you know what I mean? It seems it seems more and more and more important um, that you know understanding community requires an understanding of like or being able to at least point to like what that community actually is, right? Um, and I feel like if a, I don't know, if, if if that word is being used and there's no clear sort of indication of what the community in question is, where it is, who is part of it, um, then you know maybe it's a little meaningless. So um, as part of our just like ongoing interrogation conflict grapple with this word you know we wanted to talk to you about that idea you know because like a bookstore right um and you know obviously like in our minds like an independent bookstore like max backs you know it's like a a physical site you know of community you know and this sort of like force or like um actor you know in in this a sort of larger project of uh culture-making within a community, right? If that community is Cleveland or like the Cleveland sort of literary scene or, you know, however, you know, there are layers and layers, right? It, it, it can kind of scale up. So we're just curious, like what does the word community mean to you at MaxPax, right? You know, what role do like readings and events play in the community life of a bookstore? Uh, and are there moments when you feel like, you know, like what are the moments where you feel like that, that idea that of of like the importance of community right in this sort of like space is really um is really true right like when do you when do you feel like it's like valuable so um that's like three questions but yeah what is what (laughs) what does community mean you know define for us would you mind
2: (laughs) well you guys had a perfect example of it last week when you did the reading at the art gallery um the um lighthouse as part of the Lighthouse Reading Series. It's a, it was a beautiful space with art on the walls, um, chair set up, two terrific poets and um, people gathered to hear those poets and the, their books provided by the small press, Cleveland State University Press and um, the AK Press last week. The um, fellowship and the, the conversation that happens before and after and the, um, the reading itself, the art you know, that was present, the artistry that was present, that is what I define as community. I mean, that you, you guys produced that right there. And that is what I think a reading series does, for sure, um, in, a, in, a, in a bookstore too. I was thinking of another reading that when um, Hillary and Carol did the launch at the B-side not too long ago for their books, there's a kind of a low table at the book at the B side, and I brought a bunch of books. And um, it felt like it feels sort of like laying your blanket down at Central Park and putting out your wares, you know. And and I I love that. I love doing that. Um, and you know, you might sell some books, and um, that is good for the bookstore and for the authors. But the the surrounding environment and the act of being there. With everyone is what I think community is. Just you know, being at the bookstore and, and opening the door and having customers come in and having conversations with people, um, that's community. And there's a, like you know millions of connections that can be made that way o- over the years. And it doesn't matter if it's the first time that you're walking in the door or if you've been a customer for forty years. You know, it's 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 a space where you know, people can feel very comfortable and at home and welcomed. And where they will be connected to other people that will, and, or other, you know, neighborhood spaces or community spaces that will make them feel the same way. So I think that it is, it, you're right, it is a commonplace word and can, can lose its meaning. But if you step back and think about it, it's being created every single second. Um, by people like, you know, the Cleveland State University Poetry Center and independent bookstores and, uh, you know, the pizza shop and anywhere, anywhere where there's a human being who is welcoming to another human being and is fully, pre fully present, you know? Yeah.
0: I, I like the, uh, I think that's so great <laughs> just, just to, I don't know, to just bring it back to the actual like essential meaning of, of, of that word, you know? Because it's also you know just probably the case that it's so uh, I don't want to say like weaponized that feels like too strong, but you know, like put toward a, put toward a purpose or put toward like such a sort of particular mission statement D and you know that it's almost in our in our effort to define it, we've actually kind of diluted it in other funny ways. That's it's
2: gotten cool. commodified, maybe, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, well, think
2: it about human. it in the context of the um, artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff. And mm. and I just always think, I think our job is to stay, to stay human. I mean, that technology might lead us in good and bad directions, but, you know, our job is to, to stay human and retain the qualities that make human beings, human beings.
0: Oh, like the humanities.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
1: Suzanne, I love that your, I mean, your examples are so generous, you know, toward the Poetry Center, and then, you know, toward those events, because I always am, you know, so grateful to you and Max Becks for coming to those events and kind of, you know, maybe that's like a good sign about a community endeavor when everyone there once, like, thinks the other person made it, (laughs) you know, you're like, like, to me, like, Max Becks doing pop-ups, like, all over the city, um, and just being willing to be everywhere um and come to all of these events and sell the sell the books and have kind of all the energy kind of flow through the books and that's what people take home or you know connects people with book culture is is so essential. Um, and also it's like, <laughs> as a small press editor, you know, we appreciate it's uh, you know maybe sometimes a lot of books are sold. Maybe sometimes not a lot of books are sold, but everybody understands that, you know, and I like your emphasis too on those like interstitial moments or those little in between moments, um, you know, with the pandemic we lost all of that in between chatting and the before and after community and presence of an event, like a chat in the hallway or a chat in the line, or you know, like going to the bar after an event, all of those things that no one would have said were were essential or if you were commodifying an event, they wouldn't be the thing that you sold. <laughs> um, but in fact, they're they're so vital. Um, and there may be kind of where it all happened. You know, it happens in the moment of a reading or a performance, but also in kind of the lives of everyone around it and and people talking and connecting around that. My, our next question. Oh, sorry, Zach.
0: Can we, just real quick, I want to, before we go to the next thing that we had planned to ask, Sue, when you mentioned AI, it just made me, it made me think of like, I mean, this is a really simple question. Um, so like Hillary and I, you know, we both teach writing um, and as part of teaching writing, we try to in a, I think, in a way, like teach reading or at least encourage reading as a part of the writing process, right? Um, and thinking process, and just sort of relating to world to that um, all of this stuff is supposed to, I think, at its best, be on some level. Um, and you know, at least like, yeah, you know, I'll just say from personal experience, you know, like I feel like I'm often um, as a teacher, sort of like grappling with this notion or like trying to get around this obstacle that like I can't tell I can't tell like I think it's a little real but like I can never tell how overblown this like sort of idea is that just kind of like you know it's like uh the kids don't read you know (laughs) and then like I'm often like pedagogically making decisions to be like well how do I get around the fact that like my students don't want to like you know look at like a sustained sort of block of text or you know a a a bunch of paragraphs on a few pages you know um and uh on one level i often feel like overcompensating for that or is is not really helping anybody because it's kind of like well you can't, like reading like anything takes practice right um but i wonder how um just as like a bookseller right um just how you how you feel about that sort of like popular notion, right, that like reading is um reading in the sense that we think about like engaging with like literature. Um which I think there's some way to separate that from like reading um a news article on a website or like reading stuff on social media. I know I know that that's different. Um but I, I, yeah, I, I just wonder like how how do you think about that that idea? Like does that does that like scare you? Do you do you think it's bullshit? I mean, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I, because I, I, I feel like I'm constantly like having experiences of of both things, you know, where I'm I'm often like thinking that I'm, you know, I'm giving students something. I'm like, oh man, I don't, I don't know if they're gonna really dig this, and then I'll be totally surprised. And then at other times, I'm like, okay, I've really, I've really engineered the perfect reading experience, and it's just a total flop. So like, um. In terms of just this, you know, yeah, this idea that like reading is somehow, as we think about it, uh, on the decline. How do you how do you think about that as a bookseller? How does it, or just as a a person?
2: Well, that's a great question. Um, I, of course, I see the reader. So the people that come into the store are motivated to read and buy books. So um, that other part of the population that's not interested doesn't usually step into the store. Um, So I've just been really encouraged by, I mean, there's young people are a huge part of our customer base. Um, So I think that part of it is maybe due to um, social media, people exchanging ideas and suggestions about books. I think that drives a lot of sales. And um, you guys are familiar with the whole Colleen Hoover TikTok phenomena um she's an author that no one even heard of a couple of years ago and now you know she's carpeting the bestseller lists um because she became um you know an, a TikTok phenomena and this is happening all the time and so I think it's good because um it's bringing people into reading and it can t- and sustains people's interest in reading so I'm I'm actually really encouraged by what I see, um, through the bookstore. Um, I, I, I feel like people, we sell some really big books like the Nosgard, you know, Carl Nosgard, that whole big, you know, thing we, we sell that kind of regularly. And that's like a huge, um, thing to tackle. And, and it's, it's mostly young people that are getting that. And so I feel like, um, reading is, I, I just, I, you 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 guys, as teachers might have a different perspective because you're seeing some, probably a lot of reluctant readers. But I remember once um, a friend of mine's daughter was in the store and I was, you know, trying to think, oh, what would she like? She was kind of maybe around sixteen or seventeen. And so I'm putting all these books in her hands and you know, and really, she wound up like leaning up against the shelf reading a Jan Grisham book. And you know, that's what she wanted to be reading. and um, and so, I think that making you no know, judgments on people, I, I mean, that's been a, that's a big thing, I think, for booksellers anyways, like we, and that to judge what, what people want to read. And it's just like you're coming in and finding inspiration or education. Um, and so uh, I think just being let loose in a bookstore or a library and opening up a book and reading the first pa- paragraph and getting engaged, I think that is a big part of what we do as a bookstore um, is just to provide this whole you know, banquet and then people can find what, what they're into at the time.
0: I like the, I like the banquet. Yeah, that's good.
1: <laughs> I love all that, um, you know, that sort of the dance between hopefulness, persistent, the persistent hopefulness and then setbacks and frustration <laughs> which <laughs> characterize so much of, of our work And maybe the hope is the most frustrating part because you're like, yeah, people still, people love reading. People love it. They come in and just do it. You know, that's what they eat it up. Yes. Uh, And so then, you know, when you're thinking about how to keep sustaining all of this, you're doing it because, you know, people love it. Even though we also receive all these messages all the time that it's over, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was just opening like, I guess the New Yorker this morning that was like the humanities are ending, and I was like, "Come on, guys!" <laughs> like, oh yeah, the, uh, the um, end of the <laughs> English
0: major. Yeah, I was like, cool.
1: "This isn't gonna help." Um, anyway, <laughs> um, so then I was um, wanting to ask you a question that you know we'd really love. Kind of your insight on as our as small press editors and publishers um because Maxx is such an incredible like job supporting small press and independently published books and um local authors right who publishing all, across all all the presses right and you know that's not that's not necessarily the same kind of priority maybe at every bookstore right some bookstores are maybe more tuned into kind of the national economy books. They're not as tuned into their local writers, et cetera, or they're not stocking as many indie and small press books. Um, so I'm just curious kind of how you think about that relationship between independent bookstores um, and independent and small press publishing and kind of what's shared about our mission and values or, or what what's kind of important or lively about that relationship in your eyes?
2: Well, I think it's a vital relationship and it's what gives independent bookstores their character um, is the... small presses that are on our shelves um everyone's going to carry you know the the bestsellers and and i don't even mean like the popular fiction bestsellers i mean you know even the like literary fiction bestsellers those are those are going to be around but you have to i think um define your identity by the, the kinds of small press books that you bring in it is an essential partnership and um bookstores need to support the small press and buy their books. That's really kind of the bottom line. You know, our philosophy is, is, um, I just wanna buy them and um, have them always here at the store. Um, You know, if we do a reading or something, we're not really quite sure how many people are gonna buy a book. And, you know, we we try not to do a lot of returns for small press or for um, local authors because, it's a way to support what you guys are doing and what they're doing. And so it's a way to pay you for what you're doing is to buy the books and to keep them on hand. So it's like, if you go go down to say like a granular level, like we just finished doing um, an order with our consortium rep and um, consortium is a a distributor of a lot of small presses. you know, Boa Editions, Copper Canyon, some of the bigger small presses that deal in poetry. And so I'll, you know, kind of look at the list and the staff here shares the buying duties. So, um, but I'm I'm usually looking at the poetry and um, most of the time, I don't know who these people are that are being published. I've never heard of them before. Um, So I read the descriptions, you know, I just try to support every season. I try to support the lists you know, with at least a couple buys from each, um, because then that is a way to support the small press. And then, of course, if we're we're doing a reading um, from a small press author, then we'll you know buy the books then too. But it it has to be a symbiotic relationship. Um, and you know, I hope that we're doing enough for the small press. I hope Indies are doing enough for the small press because it's 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 really the lifeblood the,
1: you know, the indie bookstore. Thank you. That's, I mean, it's a dream of an answer <laughs> from our from our side. You know, I was curious to ask kind of about the economic side of it and, and that granular level you were mentioning, because as, as writers, when we're kind of out and about, or we're <laughs> doing events at different bookstores across the country or talking to different booksellers, I mean, one thing that seems to come up is um, the sort of, you know, the economic obstacles to ordering small press books um, faced by bookstores, uh, maybe particularly people often mention um, that small press distribution, which serves, you know, quite a lot of small presses, although obviously not all of them in the US, Ingram often sells those books at a short discount, like a, a worse rate of discount or terms than um, than does for the big publishers um, because of whatever structure, or con- you know, negotiation has happened on that side. So that kind of has ended up, I think, discouraging indie bookstores from stocking SPD books. There's been you know just these sort of like economic obstacles. Uh to building that kind of, I think, natural relationship between indie bookstores and and independent and small press publishers. And, you know, at at some bookstores, you know, people, you know, don't want to order from SPD because the discount rate is quite a bit worse or the return, there's not a, you can't return in the same way, et cetera. Um, So I'm just, I'm curious for your point of view on sort of how the economics work out in, you know, ordering from consortium or from SPD or, you know, just kind of ordering indie and small press books on selling them versus the bigger presses, you know, how that, how the, all those structures work, um, and how you've, you've navigated
2: them. Well, um, we do, we have reps with the big five publishers. And so, um, uh, some of them have lists every season. Some of them have lists twice a year. And so we, um, do our buying through our reps in that way, but the day-to-day things, um, is really handled by Ingram book company. So Ingram book company is kind of like the huge elephant in the room for, I know a lot of small presses and a lot of writers, um, and a lot of bookstores. Um, it's the major book wholesaler in the country. And, um, They um, have enabled us really to be very, very competitive with Amazon. Um, One of um, their warehouses is a day away from the bookstore. So oftentimes if someone orders a book before noon, we can get, if it's in stock at this warehouse in Fort Wayne, Indiana, we can get it the next day. And so it's, it's helped us become very, very competitive with Amazon because if somebody does call and ask for one of those big popular bestsellers and we don't have it, we can say we can get it the next day. And, and so then also they have a very um, efficient, good operation. And so they're um, very easy to use and to deal with. And so um, it sort of becomes a default for us to use mm-hmm. them because their um, operations are, are so easy um, for us. And so we might um, order from Ingram instead of SPD because we could, we could get it maybe the title in a day Hmm. and um, the SPD warehouse is in California. And so anything we order from SPD um, in here will take a week to get here, which doesn't seem like much, but this is like in the, you know, era of Amazon and what's happened in the book industry is called just in time ordering where, um, you know, it's, you don't really maybe have um, an inventory of 10 titles of a, you know, of a bestseller in stock. You might have two because you know, you can get more, the next day and if it's and if it's not selling anymore then you could you know you don't have that back stock so the just in time ordering going back to one of your very earlier questions was another huge development you know or kind of operational thing that happened for bookstores so but if ingram is not carrying that title um or that small press then um it creates an extra layer of you know of job or work for us. And then, you know, we have to be able to, to pivot and focus on getting that title and spending the time to do it. And that's our job to make sure that we're doing that and covering all those bases and not just relying on this huge national wholesaler who has most books and we can get in a day. Um, that's, you know, that's not serving the, the, the literary community and small press community the way we would need it to be.
1: And that's very illuminating. Thank you. I mean, to have that point of view, I think we mentioned sort of right before we started recording, um, this week has brought uh, this kind of surprising news from SPD that they've begun a new partnership with Ingram. Um, We are still kind of learning about that, you know, (laughs) Um, learning how that will work, what it will look like, what the terms are. Um, From your description, it seems like something like that will or, and also from, you know, my own like little summary of some of the um, pricing struggles there, you know, we'll reduce some friction between, um, for bookstores who want to order SPD books. It's a surprise, it was a surprise to us, SPD publishers, particularly because SPD had always defined itself as, um, you know, an alternative to the corporate, you know, entities and, in, in book selling. So that was a little, <laughs> a little bit confusing to be like, no, now we're partnering with corporations. So, um, we're, you know, kind of, figuring out, you know, how to think about that, what it will look like, like what it will mean, et cetera. It seems like, as you note, the sort of dominance of Ingram, maybe that basically made it hard for alternatives to survive. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. And, um, the way they've dealt with the small press community so far is they have, um, an arm of their corporation called independent publisher services. So consortium, which is, um, is part of that and that's one of our favorites um, distributors because they they represent a lot of the small presses that are important to us. They are, even though we have a consortium rep and we order through consortium, they are distributed by Ingram, ultimately, so um, and they are in a warehouse that is farther away and we have minimums you can't you know you won't get a discount or you won't get free shipping unless you have minimum. So sometimes we, so those books don't come the next day. Those books might take two weeks to get there because we have to wait till we get the minimum um, to place the order. Um, so they've put all the kind of small presses in that warehouse in Tennessee, which is farther away. And um, I'm wondering if that's what's going to happen um, with SPD. It just seems like it would make sense because Publishers Group West is part of that. Mm-hmm. And these are all the, you know, the like legendary kind of, um publisher groups that represented small press. and um, this is how it's being handled by the national wholesaler. Um, and the other thing that you said, Hillary, earlier um, before we came on was that you were you're thinking they're moving to a print on demand uh, model for for small presses. And I don't know. it's kind of like a double-edged sword. I mean, print on demand is 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 um, is good for some things, but Um, sometimes the quality really suffers and, you know, the poetry publications that come from Cleveland State and, you know, all the the other great iconic small presses um, don't use that model usually. And so they retain this beautiful affect, you know, the, the way to hold a book and to feel it. And it's just part of the reading experience is to have this beautiful object that the small presses produce. If it goes to a print on demand, model. I'm not sure if that will be retained. I mean, sometimes it can be, I guess, but that's, that's troubling. You know, on the other hand, is it more economical for small presses to use print-on-demand because then you don't have your you, an inventory of books. So, you know, it's, it's that trade-off. And the other thing about print-on-demand that I would say is that um, during, um, you know, after um, George Floyd I was murdered and there was just this huge and actually unprecedented, we've never seen anything like this, amount of ordering people being interested in social justice books. And that was during the the pandemic, the earliest days of the pandemic. Um, We were solely, we were open in the store, but we were also just mostly getting online orders. And it was, um, like I said, unprecedented is the word for it. And a lot of those titles went to print on demand to meet the demand. And so um, in that case, it was it was really good because um, instead of waiting for a whole other reprinting, which might have taken a month or two months or something of some popular titles, the turnaround time was then a week. And so we could satisfy our customers who wanted these titles because of print on demand. So. So I mean, if the it's not necessarily a bad thing if the quality remains the same, but it also, you know, it it takes longer. You have to, it's what we tell our customers is this is a print on demand title. It's printed when it's ordered. And so it takes longer.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's also much to think about. And um <laughs> I feel like, you know, this this conversation is for the record, but maybe we'll just have to keep talking about all things. You know, um, it's strange to live in, you know, a time when you know, I'd gotten used to sort of the corporate consolidation across publishing and and watching all of that happen. And we sort of watched one um, stage of it be beaten back, I guess last fall when the big five did not in fact become the big four. Um, and you know, that kind of antitrust suit succeeded in blocking the merger, et cetera. I just I wasn't quite expecting, you know, even seeing kind of Ingram's sort of rise over the past 20 years, I didn't totally expect then um, all our small press alternatives <laughs> to also kind of be absorbed or enter into, um, even though, uh, you know, I saw it happen with consortium and all, and all of that in the, in the 2000s, quite a lot was going on with distributors, um, folding and merging, et cetera. So yeah, the future, <laughs> we'll see what the future holds. I know we just have a few more minutes because we said we'd steal you for an hour. Um, Zach, do you wanna ask our last question?
0: Absolutely. Um, Suzanne, do you have any advice for someone who wants to do what you do or start an independent (laughs) bookstore? Anyone, anyone who would dare (laughs) in this day and age?
2: Well, My path to it was different because I had never worked in a bookstore before, and um, I think a lot of people come to bookselling from working at stores and then, you know, understanding the fundamentals and um, and then knowing how to go about it. So we just kind of grew organically, and there's probably some basic things that I never really even knew, and maybe still don't know about bookselling, because of the you know the way we did it. Um, but I think that. Neighborhood book selling is really important, and I think every neighborhood deserves a good bookstore. And um, I think um, if you want to get into book selling, probably um, it is good to, to to work in a store or a library. And, um, there's all kinds of models out there too, that are interesting. There's hybrid models, there's, you know, there's books on wheels, you know, people can, you know, so I think it's being open to the different possibilities and what works for you. And I think, um, I think it can be done, you know, a lot of, um, and we talked about this a lot before the pandemic, there was a lot of hybrid models that were really working for people. I have a friend who owns a bookstore in Kentucky. It's also, uh, you know, she's also a knitter. And so it's also a, a niche, you know, where you can buy knitting supplies and yarn and stuff. And so I think it just depends really on the interest and creativity of the individual involved and the, the market circumstances where, where they want to, you know, where they want to apply the trade.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think of, um, we've, t- we've talked about some of those uh, shops that have, alternative or like hybrid models too like um is it like Elizabeth and Akron they I, they do they have almost like this like pop-up model which like seems pretty cool yeah that, that I think yeah either <laughs> precipitated by pandemic or otherwise it, it seems like there is like interest in exploring other forms that book selling can take cool too which is that's cool
1: I was just down at $2 Radio HQ in Columbus um, doing an event and they are also a vegan cafe. And so when we got there, there was just, I mean, there's a huge crowd and and uh, I was there with Carol and we were like, wow, we didn't know we were this popular in Columbus. And then we were like, no, 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 they're here for the cafe. <laughs> 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 they're maybe we- not staying for the reading. I mean, some people <laughs> were there for the reading, but I, I liked it as a, like, that both sides of that were kind of popular and overlapping and intersecting and people could pick up a book who were there for for a vegan treat yeah well
0: that's great too because that just brings us right back to where we started which is thinking of the intersection between food service and literature yeah
2: Yeah, i think there's beer at two dollar radio too isn't there yeah indeed
1: indeed there you go there you go suzanne thank you so much uh for this wonderful conversation and also for collaborating with us so much through the years and we'll We'll look forward to talking more (laughs) about all of these ongoing developments
2: um, in the book. We'll figure it all out. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me, and um, thank you for everything that you guys are doing as part of the tapestry of um, literature and literary, you know, culture in Cleveland.
0: Hey, no problem. (laughs)